0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, which you can listen to Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1. Our last episode of the podcast this week. Thank you so much for all the ideas you sent in. Uh, big ideas to change the country. We've uh, we've rounded up some of the best. We've got absolutely loads. We've rounded up some of the best. Uh, and they're coming up in, in a moment when I chat to Suzanne Hayward, who set up the uh, Hayward Foundation Policy Prize in uh, the memory of her husband, Jeremy Herbert, the former cabinet secretary. So we've got to chat with her and uh, picking over your ideas coming up. In a moment, we'll have our columnist panel. But because it's Thursday, you might have noticed that on a Thursday, there's quite often a strange story from Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, The Commons leader doesn't really do interviews anymore for reasons that we don't need to get into, Uh, but he quite often seems to commit news on a Thursday. Slightly strange news. Uh, Basically, this is because business questions happen on a Thursday. They're sort of like poor man's prime minister's questions and Jacob Rees-Mogg fields questions from MPs on a whole range of subjects and uh, he has to give a sort of government response. And I just noticed in recent weeks that they were getting madder and madder. So this is how I spent an afternoon pulling together the wit and wisdom of Jacob Rees-Mogg.
2: They're now British fish and they're better and happier fish for it. Under Under the sea! Under the sea! Who cannot recall? The episode of Peppa Pig, when Peppa decides to go and jump in a muddy puddle, that being her favourite activity. She is joined by her brother George, by her father and her mother, and I've got a feeling even the grandparents um, join in, and they all get covered in mud. Woke washing sounds extremely painful, and I hope that we will be woke dry-cleaned pretty quickly to get rid of the wokeness. Isn't there a little bit of all of us when we are driving? who rather wish we were Lewis Hamilton when we're stuck at a red traffic light and the M4 stretches out for miles in front of us and we think, oh, if only, if only we could put our foot down a little and go a bit faster. As regards, girls going to Eton, much, though. I might like my own daughter to go there. I think it works very well as it is. Thank you very much. Father Christmas will be able to have a travel corridor. He will be able to come in. He won't have to be vaccinated. I've been looking up the elephant bird. Did you know the elephant bird's egg, which is now extinct, could weigh up to 22 pounds? Which is quite a big egg. If you turned that into a Scotch egg, I think that would unquestionably be a substantial meal. Have a predilection for cream eggs, which is probably not to be encouraged, and I did even once have a deep-fried Mars bar, which is absolutely, which is absolutely delicious. Until my honourable friend added the garlic sauce in the salad, I thought it sounded really rather delicious, but I'm afraid I shall have to stick to my deep-fried Mars bar, which is free of garlic, which I've always thought of the most ghastly stuff. If I claim Elizabeth I as the first Tory, which I'm tempted to do, we've still got to maintain social distancing—six and a half feet away from people. Think of me being laid down flat, and that is a little bit short of the distance that you need. I used to think that Monalot was a fictional character, but it turns out it's actually the First Minister of Scotland. That all Mrs. Sturgeon can ever do is Monalot. But when Britain first at heaven's command arose from the azure main, this was the anthem of the land, and guardian angels sang this train. Rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves, and Britain's never, never, never shall be slaves.
1: Okay, on with the episode then, and we start with our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be cram. It's Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. Let's talk about what is being dubbed, fairly or otherwise, Keir Starmer's worst week. I mean, nothing sort of massive has really happened, but it's sort of a whole collection of things have have come together to, to just give the slight sense it's not all going terribly well uh, let's so so to just sort of give a quick recap. Um, he there, there was this leaked report that he was going to wrap himself in the flag uh, to make himself more patriotic, and lots of Labour MPs have said that's a bit naff and won't work. Uh, and then there was this ding dong he had in the House of Commons yesterday with Boris Johnson. Let's take a listen. He wanted to stay in the European Medicines Agency, Mr. Speaker, and said so four times from that dispatch box. Nonsense! Don't let the truth get in the way of a pre-prepared gag. Mr Speaker, the the Prime Minister knows I've never said that uh, from this dispatch box or anywhere else, but uh, the truth uh, escapes him. Uh, It turned out the truth escaped Keir Starmer, where he later admitted that maybe he had suggested staying in the European Medicines Agency uh, after all, but he he just misheard what the Prime Minister was saying. Uh, Then the Guido Fawkes website found a video where Keir Starmer talked about um, abolishing the Queen. Um, I also got made a Queen's Council
3: um, which is
1: um, odd since I often used to um, propose the abolition of the monarchy I got a Queen's Council which is ironic because I used to uh, uh, propose the abolition of the monarchy there in an old video Um, and on top of all of that the Tories are now 7 points ahead in the polls so Esther is it all as bad as it looks if you put all of those things together
4: um, it's not. It's not brilliant. I mean, I'm tempted to say it's early doors. He's still <laughs> kind of devising his strategy. He's working behind the scenes on what's going to happen next. But we've been saying that for well, it's coming up to a year since he took over in April, um, and we're all waiting for this kind of breakthrough moment. I think. Um, But maybe this is actually the norm and it's not terribly exciting. What we've yet to see is whether it might still be more attractive than the other option. What have you made of it, um, Robert? I'd I'd, I'd class
1: you as a a sort of non-inhabitant of the Westminster village uh, and all the better for it. What does it look like to you?
5: Well, it's it's not quite early doors, is it? As Esther says, it's sort of middle doors. If that's a, is, is that a phrase? <laughs> uh, like, like, she said, like she says, he's had, uh, he's had 10 months and people make up their minds pretty quickly about politicians. And it looks like the public's made up its mind about Kier. And he's real. I mean, you think if he wasn't going to break through during all the cock ups of the sp- spring and summer and autumn, he's now not going to break through, given that the vaccination process seems to be pretty much a triumph so far. I mean, it's a horribly cynical thing to say, but what he needs is the vaccination rollout to go wrong.
1: Um, I think both The Guardian has said that, you know, Keir Starmer seems to have halted, was the phrase. Stephen Bush, political editor of the New Statesman, has written a piece which is a bit on the one hand and on the other hand, but, you know, pointing out that he's not really landing either with... Westminster insiders or with the public and normally the you know a politician is doing well with one or the other but it's not really landing so far what do you think Keir Starmer can do Esther? Is it... Because there's always this 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 slight feeling. Sometimes in opposition is actually sometimes it prime minister's is the it's okay. He's working on a plan. He's keeping his powder dry. Uh, and there's you know there's there's something up his sleeve to mix metaphors. Um, uh, and sometimes it turns out that there just isn't anything. Like Gordon, when Gordon Brown became prime minister, it just turned out actually there wasn't <laughs> anything there. And uh, so is uh, there anything up his sleeves, or
4: are are his sleeves empty? I don't know. Maybe he plans to have a public punch up with. Boris Johnson, <laughs> and that might might get people's attention. Um, I think, I think sooner or later there has to be some kind of interesting policy offer because I think that is one of the things that actually the last two Labour leaders were quite good at was kind of attention-grabbing ideas that um, got good. people talking and we've had less of that and we know why because of he's overhauling the kind of management of the policy um but it would be it would be great i think if he could tell us a bit more about what what the big idea is as you'd like to say on your show Matt. Yeah, exactly. What's
1: well, to big up? Well, maybe you should listen later on and nick some of our listeners' ideas about how to clear up dog's mess and tack plastic grass. That's um, probably, the way this, probably the way to go. Robert, uh, but you're right. That you, I think you just made the point. You know, you, you only get the one chance to make a first impression, and yeah. you know, it, it, Ed Miliband was hobbled by the fact that right from the beginning, voters thought he stabbed his brother in the back, and he was a bit peculiar, mm. and he never really shook that off. And if over 12 months, Keir Starmer's established idea he sits on the fence, sort of, you know, he 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 moans from the sidelines but hasn't got any better ideas. Ooh. It's going to be very difficult if, I don't know, at the Labour Party conference this year, he suddenly announces a radical plan to change the country, if people already think he's a bit of a nothing.
5: Uh, yes, it will. But on the other hand, it, the Covid kind of gives it, in a way, gives him a bit of a, a pass because... Normal politics uh, is not has not resumed yet. Uh, I mean, we, we think we're guessing it will have done by the summer. So he's got he's got a bit of time, and then people might have another look at him. Then I just don't think he can make any headway whilst everyone's just still thinking about getting their vaccination and getting back to normal. Yeah, uh, that's his that's his problem. But in in a way, it might also be to his benefit because the 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 the, the period the normal period for making an impression might be been be extended in his case because you can write off the last year anyway. I mean what can what can an opposition do really in this in this situation?
1: I mean, I suppose the thing that, you know, that if you were being ultra-critical, you could have, you know, the last 12 months, there have been opportunities for big ideas. He could have yeah. uh, really pushed on, you know, the vaccine that I know there were some Labour MPs I've spoken to who said, you know, they could have spent the summer calling for a windfall tax on the supermarkets who've done very well out of, uh, you know, yeah. to pay for the NHS, or so- just a big idea that might have got people talking. And what we don't know yet, to be fair to Keir Starmer, is is he someone who does have big, bold ideas, but he wants to wait until
5: Really a pretty bold, it's a pretty bold idea to abolish the monarchy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how that one squares with patriotism and wrapping yourself in the how, flag.
5: How long ago did he say that?
1: It's a while. I mean, to be fair, I've, the video looks like it is some time ago. Uh, um, so, yeah, in his defense, it wasn't last week, but, but I think, it, you know. Yeah,
5: but then he was a QC already, so he wasn't like he was 20. So he was.
1: Yes, no, it wasn't. Yes, it definitely wasn't that he was, um, yeah. you know, like a. a, a a kid. He was in his, yes, exactly. It wasn't some sort of naive youth uh, No, No, he's already in Queen's
5: Council, so he must have been yeah, forty odd.
1: <laughs> no, I'm just well, let's at move it, on. That.
5: That's important. That's important, isn't it?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, well let's 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 leave him to his um uh troubles uh, for the time being. Um and uh, move on to talk about the much much easier to solve question of Brexit. Uh, the suggestion that it's already time to scrap the Brexit deal that it took so long to um, to get sorted. Uh, Esther, explain what
4: is going on here. So, um, it, it's been the case since since the new year, so since the end of the transition period, that things have not been going very well at the Northern Irish Sea border. Which, uh, also known as the Northern Ireland Protocol that was introduced to Chinese ease the flow of goods between the EU and the UK. Um, we've heard things like supermarkets not being able to get their stock out properly to Northern Ireland and then this week things kind of ramped up again as um some loyalists were making threats against staff who work at the border control and they had to be withdrawn for their own safety so really the situation is pretty serious it is what do you what do you make of it Robert I mean it, 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 well, well, it's evidence
1: it, really that it was the island was always one of the most tricky bits of trying to make yeah. Brexit a reality
5: and, they didn't, and, they, and uh, uh, they didn't resolve it, uh, which is evident now, uh, only a month in. I mean, it's, this actually started with the the other border, the, the border between the Republic and the North, the land border, uh, last week when the EU was saying that they were going to try and prevent uh, vaccines slipping into Britain, uh, into the U- UK via the Republic. Uh, and now it seems there's problems with the, the stuff going the other way uh, because... There's these these extra checks are being applied very zealously, and it's effectively created what nobody wanted to want, certainly what the unionists didn't want to create, which is a border down the Irish Sea. Uh, you can't ask... I mean, if you're asking me to solve it, I'm afraid I can't. Uh, <laughs> better minds than mine have done so. But in a way, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't sort of blame... I can't really blame... I, I'm not necessarily saying I'm a, a unionist, but if I were a unionist, I would... I can sort of have some sympathy with Arlene Foster, who is saying this is if this is this looks like a border. It's sort of behaving like a border. And that, <laughs> can only, that can only encourage the reunification of Ireland, which she doesn't the unification of Ireland, which she doesn't want to see. Uh, yeah,
1: it's a really true. I mean, and it, it, it it's one of those things where the DUP were enthusiastic backers of Brexit, but have never quite mm. seemed to work out how to resolve this problem given yeah. that they are also part of the, of the Northern Ireland uh, peace process as, as well. It's a really tricky one. Well, hopefully, I think there's going to be some um, there's questions in the House of Commons uh, about it uh, later on. So we'll check in on that um, uh, later as well. Uh, Esther, we need to talk about your piece in The Times today, the number crunching you've done uh, with our colleague Dan, uh, revealing the most rebellious Conservative MP in the Parliament. Uh, we'll find out uh, your take on it in a sec, but we, we caught up with him a little earlier.
2: Wasn't a title I was aware was available. To be honest, uh, I was quite quite amused, surprised, and amused by the. We're, we're sent to Parliament to reflect
1: a variety of things: the interests of our constituents, but also, you know, the, the the principles that we that we believe in. With this government, it's not necessarily the government's fault. the The Parliament is pretty weak. You know, it 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 doesn't it doesn't. Uh, that have a great deal of constraint on the executive. I mean if you 're a minister today,
3: you can turn up in a nearly empty House of Commons, um, and there 's no real sort of dynamism or ability to intervene off the cuff and all that sort of stuff,
1: uh, and so it 's actually much weaker than, it, than it used than it normally is, and it will be in the future. Uh, that was David Davis, of course, the former Brexit secretary, former cabinet minister who used to stand in the House of Commons pleading with Tory MPs to stop rebelling and vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal. And now he's a very naughty boy. Um Esther, uh, what does this tell us about, because he's not the only one, what does this tell us about the state of rebellion in the Tory party right now?
4: It's really interesting because I think there are few, two main factors at work here. Um, One is the new intake of, or I suppose they're not new anymore, but the 2019 influx of Conservative MPs who were definitely from a much more varied range of backgrounds than traditional Tories and are perhaps less kind of party-obsessed or party-driven and they've proved quite independent minded in a lot of ways. And then added to that, I think, is the, um, the fact that everything is taking place virtually at the moment. So one MP told me that, um, the, the Palace of Westminster is like the Marie Celeste at the moment. There's just no one there. So you, the whips have less of a chance to kind of bend people's in. but also there's less kind of less of the camaraderie and the kind of team spirit which you would normally expect to play in to the way people vote <clears throat> Do you think, Robert, this,
1: this matters that, um, that Boris Johnson doesn't appear to totally have control on his MPs? They do seem to, particularly beginning of last year, before Covid erupted, there was a lot of trouble, whether it was on China and Huawei or the BBC or planning reforms. Um, and, and as we, as you were just saying, getting back to politics as normal, we might suddenly start seeing that this bubbles up again
5: yeah i mean yeah, i suppose it, the, the, the the truism is that you can never the electorate doesn't like a divided party i'm not sure how true that is necessarily still uh yeah i mean i, I suppose we'll, we'll see a big important piece of legislation that the government wants to get through uh not necessarily about uh, lockdown but some aspect of economic policy or uh, i don't know social care reform or something that, you know the, the things that they are piling up on the agenda The where you see a significant rebellion i mean you'd think with an 80 seat majority you'd be okay but uh if it as, as as esther describes then maybe he's not okay i don't believe david davis by the way when he said he didn't know the title was available i think he's, i suspect he knew precisely it was available
1: that was esther webber and Robert crampton there you can read them both uh, writer for the times you just need to get yourself a time subscription go to the times.co.uk forward slash times red box up next your big policy ideas
6: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now uh, we are going... You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now let's hear some of your big ideas because of this competition which has been set up uh, in memory of Jeremy Haywood. Uh, his widow, Suzanne Haywood, has written a biography of her husband. But this is not just any spousal biography. So Jeremy Haywood was a senior civil servant who worked for four prime ministers, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron and Theresa May until his death in 2018. Suzanne's just published What Does Jeremy Think? Jeremy Hayward and the Making of Modern Britain. She's launched this competition in her husband's name to ask for big ideas to change the country, judged by ministers and policy experts. We'll come to that and your big ideas in just a moment. But I've been speaking to Suzanne and I asked her how she went about writing the book.
7: Well, I was determined. I mean, he allowed me to kind of do his biography and I was determined to do it in a very professional way. Uh, and so you're right. I talked to over 200 people, which means mm-hmm. that, which is fantastic because it means that you source every story from multiple different angles. And the fantastic thing about it is, as you say, Jeremy worked for multiple different prime ministers. So he worked for kind of, uh, well, he started right back at kind of Black Wednesday. The book starts at Black Wednesday when he was working for Norman Lamont back in 1992, and then goes all the way through him working for Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. Uh, And then he worked for uh, Cameron and then he worked for um, Cameron and Clegg together, obviously, in the coalition, then Cameron and then May. And what's fantastic is you've got this kind of running kind of story all the way through. And you can see what happens in the kind of transition from one administration to another. And quite often they take policies that didn't quite get implemented in one government and roll them forward and kind of repackage them and do them in the next government. Um, And the same little stories crop up again and again and again, you know, there's a a running little story that really amused me about where the Prime Minister sits in number 10. And it was a bit of a battle right at the start with Tony Blair, kind of which office was he going to have, and they did a lot of office reshuffling to work out which office he was going to go in. And then Gordon came in, and they had the same debate all over again, then he ended up creating this kind of war room, uh, and then uh, then Cameron came in and had exactly the same debate again. He wanted to kind of go and have a office on the first floor. Then finally, just to kind of sum up the whole story, Mrs May came in and Jeremy said, you know, where would you like to sit? Normally you sit here. And she said, that's absolutely fine. I just need a table. <laughs>
1: And it's amazing, but what you can read into the psychology of different politicians and their approach to that sort of stuff is, is fascinating. And obviously he, he became cabinet secretary uh, uh, in the coalition and then for Theresa May as well. Explain to people what that means, because he's a civil servant, which means he, he's there to serve whatever uh, colour of government we have, maybe Labour, Tory, coalition, whatever. But what does the cabinet secretary do?
7: And it's a great title, isn't it? Because it means, you know, it's one of those extraordinary titles, kind of. Anyway, so Cabinet Secretary, what they effectively do is they help the Prime Minister run the Cabinet. So the Cabinet is the heart of government where all the ministers come together and make decisions that affect the whole government. And the Cabinet Secretary is in charge of making sure that that mechanism works well. And as well as the kind of main Cabinet, which we all know about, you then have a set of Cabinet committees, which deal with all sorts of other issues. The Cabinet Secretary, oversees all of that, oversees that whole process. But actually it's a much bigger role than that because, because usually the cabinet secretary is also the head of the civil service. So in addition to helping the prime minister run the cabinet or organize the cabinet, they oversee all of the different departments. So all of the permanent secretaries sit in all of the departments, Department for Education, Department for Health, they all report up to the kind of cabinet secretary usually, who is also the head of the civil service. And at the end of his career, Jeremy was both cabinet secretary and head of the civil service, both kind of roles coming together.
1: So how do you approach writing a book about your spouse?
7: The job was basically go out and talk to everybody who was involved, go and do all the desk research, understand all the other books that are being written, You know, talk to Jeremy. Obviously, I talked to Jeremy quite a lot, but I talked to many, many other people and you put it together because you want it to be rich in detail and incredibly kind of fact-based. And I felt I was in immensely privileged because i was telling and i've used this analogy a couple of times almost like if you think about downton abbey we have all of these biographies of politicians and that's the upstairs you know and upstairs you get one view of the world it's very different looking at what happens administration <laughs> you know down below as it were uh, and it, it's absolutely fascinating i have to say
1: no the, the i really liked the downton abbey uh, analogy because it does because i suppose also you know the the grandees upstairs might come and go and they get married and move away or whatever it might be but the the butler and the footman or whatever you know keep the the show on the roads they they stay there for years and years and years so yeah it's a really it's a really nice uh way of trying to describe i think sometimes i think people could struggle yeah what's the difference between the cabinet secretary and a cabinet minister called the housing secretary you know all the names are a bit too yeah you know, when they're completely different completely different roles. Um, so, at what point did you start writing the book? Because you, you, because it's right, isn't it, that civil servants aren't supposed to write books. So that's, so but then you, that's all right because you're just a member of the public who just happens to be writing a book about
5: Jeremy.
7: Well, civil servants are allowed to write books, so there are many, um, many, bi- the many biographies and many autobiographies of civil servants. In fact, there's a, um, there's a biography that was written of a previous cabinet secretary, uh, Robin Butler's biography was written by Michael Jago. So, uh, but also, of course, you get, you get biographies and autobiographies of, um, uh, you know, kind of diplomats and obviously the kind of politicians as well. So no, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to, to write it. It's very unusual for it to be written by a spouse. I mean, that is very unusual. Uh, usually it's my kind of third party. I think the kind of more interesting debate and one that we debated uh, is the timing of it. Um, now, many, often they are done relatively contemporaneously. Uh, I think in Jeremy's case, in an ideal world, we would have done it later. And so what, what usually happens is somebody finishes in that sort of role and then they get a kind of lovely period, you know, 10 years or so, seven years, where they come on to shows like this, they talk about what's going on. You've had Gus on, of course, many times. Uh, they write articles and they're able to be involved in the issues of the country and give their opinion. Unfortunately, Jeremy was never going to have the chance to do that. You know, when, we, when he was diagnosed and I knew and he knew he was terminally ill, he was never going to have that opportunity. And if I was going to write his biography, I had to start writing it then, or I could never write it. So I wrote it then, contemporaneously. And then the question was when to publish it. And I was asked by the Cabinet Office to wait until David Cameron's book was out, uh, just out of kind of courtesy, which I did. Uh, but then, obviously, for me as a widow, and also for my and Jeremy's children, to wait for another kind of decade which is what we might have done otherwise would have been very difficult and come back to it now so i think the issue was more a timing issue and we're in just in a particularly kind of sad and unusual circumstance although i say that at a time when i know so many other people are going through you know really really terrible and i consider myself to be incredibly privileged and lucky in a way that i was able to have that time with him to write this book which many people sadly aren't able to do
1: And to have, you know, for many of us, the most treasured thing we have are sort of family photo albums and that sort of thing. But to have a life story like that um, and to have worked on it together is such an amazing thing to have. So let's talk about then the prize that you've set up in in Jeremy's memory, because Jeremy sadly died uh, back in 2018 explain the thinking behind the prize.
7: So I set up the Hayward Foundation in his memory, dedicated to two things. One is innovating public policy, which he was passionate about. And secondly, diversity in the public sector, which he was also passionate about. Uh, And we try to do both of those together. Now, the other thing that Jeremy did, and people will see this if they read the book, is he was great at using a crisis to get things to change. I mean, the the current crisis is the most awful thing. And I kind of sadly lost somebody. I was, you know, in in my kind of uh, quite close personal group yesterday. I'm very, very conscious of how terrible this is. Um, But it is an opportunity to get things to change for the better. And we need to grasp that opportunity. So the idea of the prize is it's in two parts, as you know. First of all, what's a great question? So, what is something which is either an opportunity that we can capitalize on or something we need to fix? So, for example, we've created all this online learning material for kids. You know, I know as a kind of mum with kind of kids studying at home, tons of stuff. Now, we all want our kids to go back to school in a normal sort of way, but we don't want to lose all of that fantastic online material. So, how do we capitalize on that? And then there were problems. You know, we, we, I think the pandemic has shown very, very clearly that we need to take another look at how care homes work and how care homes are funded. And that's become very, very kind of clear through this. So prize number one, what's the best question? Uh, oh, actually, we've got a series of prizes. So best questions. Prize number two is what's the best answer? And again, we've got a series of prizes. So, you know, what are some really, really good answers?
1: And of course, when you, when you came up with this idea, you thought, well, we'll get 50, maybe 100 entries and we'll soon be able to sift through them. How many entries have you had so far?
7: Well, we're o- well over a thousand. We've got about, I think, the last time I checked, 1,073 ideas. So I'm now in a state of uh, mild panic <laughs> about how I get 1,073 ideas and probably more because we're, uh, the idea is we're going to close the competition on the anniversary of the lockdown, so March the 26th. So we've got a little bit, we've got more time for people to get ideas in. So we're going to have more by that point. Uh, and we've got to sift them uh, so that we get to a reasonable number for the panel to look at. And what's very exciting is I've had about 45 civil servants step forward from across the civil service and they volunteered to help sift these ideas down and I had the first meeting with the first group of them yesterday. So they're very excited about the ideas and being able to engage with them and figure out what can be really interesting.
1: And then hopefully, you know, the winners will emerge and then the government will take them and, and run with them. Um, have you, are you allowed to enter? Have you got an idea that you've always thought you can't believe that Jeremy didn't take it up? And, you know, maybe you could maybe you could sort of do it anonymously and slip it in and see if it progresses.
7: Well, I've got loads of ideas, but I, th- I think it would be a bit mean of me because I think I can just, you know, give those ideas directly. I'd love this prize. I mean, wouldn't it be exciting if this prize was won by somebody who's, never really been involved in government but this is a, a moment to suddenly say well actually looking at it from somewhere really different i can see a real way to make things better for this country and that germany would love that he called it actually he had a term for it he called it open policy making and again you know he talked about it in the book he, he he did it multiple times he called it and ideas coming in from the front line from people outside of government who see how things really are um incidentally i even had a call from the treasury who said well if you've got any good ideas that you can send over our way as well that would be great so you're literally you're
1: you're you're literally running the government from your from your lockdown it's it's tremendous so if people are listening to this because somebody was sent um entries in to us you know some of some i remember when we did them last month we had everything from a sort of nhs for pets to rolling speed cameras to you know ways to deal with the housing crisis we're going to play some uh, more in a minute but um, if people want to enter properly because sending them to us is not an entry how do they go about doing that
7: they just type in haywardfoundation.com and they will find it all on the website and they can just enter there and actually what we've done recently is we've added in a new box that people should tick if they're a school child uh, because we'll probably do a special school uh, prize as well because I think that would be rather nice, and we've had a lot of interest. The arc Schools have been very interested in the prize, and they're going to start promoting it across schools. So, if you're school age, or you know someone who's school age, who's got a great idea, get them to enter as well. It's 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 open to anybody.
1: Yeah, it was uh, Susanna Haywood. and it is worth um, noting that if you do actually enter the actual Haywood Foundation Prize, the top prize, uh, if you are for question what basically coming up with what's the what's a big ch- uh, key challenge or opportunity so- presented by the COVID nineteen, uh, there's a top prize of five thousand pounds for that. If you come up with a solution to one of the big challenges, the top prize is twenty five thousand pounds. Second prize ten thousand. Third prize five thousand. And fifteen runners up get fifteen get a thousand pounds. Each. You can read more about um, Jeremy Hayward uh, in the book, uh, What Does Jeremy Think? Jeremy Hayward and the Making of Modern Britain by Suzanne Hayward. Uh, coming up next, we're going to uh, play out some of your ideas that you've sent us. No prizes at all, other than just getting to hear your idea on Times Radio. And they'll ask a couple of policy experts what they make of them. That's next on Times Radio.
7: Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio,
6: on the free Times Radio app, and on your smart speaker. Matt Chorley on Times Radio.
1: So We asked you to send in your big ideas to change the country. And these are the changes that you suggested. Kicking off with Arthur the Jamfer and his plan for the union.
5: We should devolve England. It'd be a good way to give power to the English people over their own decisions. i mean, in the same way that we devolved London, even though Westminster is in London. Maybe put that up in the north, all the way north, maybe even more north than Manchester and Liverpool, maybe New York. And I think it'd be a good way to counteract this idea that, you know, England is ruling uh, over the other nations.
1: Sylvia Crooks is fed up with the way you get hospital appointments.
8: Millions of people live far away from a major hospital in my case 64 miles. When I receive an outpatient appointment, it is often at 9am. Finding someone to transport me at such an ungodly hour is extremely difficult and the hospital transport service doesn't begin picking up until 9am at the earliest, useless for us. I wrote to the Trust suggesting that when a patient's address is recorded, the distance from the hospital, easily obtained from Google Maps, could be noted, and then people living near to the hospital might have the 9am appointment and far-flung patients could take the later appointments. My letter was not acknowledged.
1: Catherine Hersey on why home is where the heart
3: is. My big policy idea would be to develop a national hospice-at-home service. As many people who are terminally ill would like to stay at home and be cared for, surrounded by the people they love. I work for a charity with a hospice-at-home service and the pandemic has shown the advantages of caring for people in their own home. It saves money and keeps people out of hospital. And moreover, the patients are at home, surrounded by the people they love. Next, Dave Watts on
1: tackling smoking.
3: Smoking is in decline, but not very fast. And continually pushing up the price with taxes is punishing for those who try but just can't give up. My solution to the problem is a registered smoker photo ID. We allow people to apply for and receive a card which allows the cardholder to buy cigarettes. We allow a year for anyone who wants the card to get one and charge them about 10 quid. Then at the end of the year we just stop issuing cards and make it illegal to sell cigarettes to anyone who hasn't got a card. Points in favour of my idea are the cigarette companies continually say that they don't want people to take up smoking, they just want existing smokers to smoke their brand. So they can't object. And it puts a genuine barrier in place to try and discourage young people from taking up smoking in the first place.
1: Next, Marion Janna on a way to clear up the pavements.
6: We need a campaign that is solidly evidence based and that explores the simple and cheap concept of some people picking up others dogs poo as well as their own dogs poo. I know that despite being obsessive about picking up with three dogs I can occasionally miss a dollop. It makes me feel actively good about contributing to our lovely village to clean up whatever I find. I see it, I pick it up and bin it. Job done. A friend complimented me yesterday on being a poo ninja. Different incentives could also be explored, such as poo ninjas being given free poo bags or discounts at local pet shops.
1: And finally, Hugh Sayer wants changes in your garden. Tax. Plastic grass. Fake grass. This is increasingly used by developers to give a green
3: gloss to building uh, housing states. Apart from the fact it looks horrible, it looks
0: fake, it has huge environmental consequences. It offers no food or shelter for wildlife, unlike a real lawn. It has a high carbon
1: footprint. It's manufactured from fossil fuels, uh, unlike real grass, which actually captures carbon. Ultimately, it wears out and ends up in landfill. It sheds microplastic and it worsens flooding. So, that is the reason I would actually tax plastic grass and plastic hedges so that's all the changes that you wanted to see well, honestly we had so many we could have filled half an hour with them uh we had such a, a lot of great ideas so are any of them any good let's speak to two people who spend the whole time thinking the unthinkable in terms of uh, policy uh, to, from two think tanks uh, i'm joined by the social market foundations chief economist avik batachara uh, how are you doing avik yeah good thanks and the chief executive of the new economics foundation miata van Bula. hi miata hi so avik let's start with you any of those ideas particularly grab you as things that the country should be doing
6: um i think there's lots of kind of interesting ideas and, and following on from your conversation earlier i think um almost all of them raise uh important issues um i think that uh, talking about the hospice at home seems like a seems like a good proposal um i wasn't frankly aware of the of the environmental kind of impact of plastic grass so that's that's one that should be taken forward i'm intrigued by the smoking idea i don't know if i'd go that far but i think it raises some uh, interesting questions about what we're trying to do with um uh, tobacco regulation
1: yeah i must that was the one that felt most sort of out there but then it is an interesting question, you know, in public health, we've seen during the you know, coronavirus, public health is a massive issue. And if everyone accepts it, would be great if people didn't smoke, actually taking a proactive uh, stance on trying to get people to to stop smoking more aggressively. Maybe that maybe that does make sense.
6: Yeah, I think it's uh, it kind of raises the question of what the what the end goal is and what we think um, uh, what we're trying to do with our tobacco regulation So is it something like, I think, uh, and I'm very familiar with the debate on alcohol where um, generally the kind of position is that alcohol sometimes is is good and acceptable and we accept that people enjoy drinking and what we want to do is we want to cut down on the harmful drinking. Whereas with tobacco, there's this question of, are we pushing for full elimination? Um, The government's talked about aiming for um, a smoke-free society by 2030. And if you kind of buy into that ideal, then the question then then is it kind of uh is it so unacceptable to say that we shouldn't um we shouldn't want anyone to kind of be able to buy um cigarettes kind of as a matter of course um although obviously the proposal there kind of runs into the practical difficulties of, of whether there would be issues around a black markets i mean that's that's the sort of <laughs> issue that's yeah, raised exactly. always around um, public health regulations um but but it would be it would be a concern i would have around that um around that proposal but it be-
1: it was, but it was interesting because you know, it was just one of those things we don't talk about, you know, smoking and that sort of thing. What about you, Miata? Any any of the ideas you thought would definitely go as or definitely wouldn't work?
8: Yeah, so I thought there was a great uh, set of ideas here. I think, for me, the one on the union, I think, is a no-brainer. Um, I think the insight that, you know, to both revive our democracy, uh, to counter the sort of splitting of the union, we've got to devolve power. And, you know, I think it's completely right that we should be thinking about a federal settlement uh, where power is pushed into different parts of England as well as uh, other nations, Um, because in the end, people want power close to them. Uh, I love the patience um, idea and booking appointments. And for me, it goes to the heart of, you know, there is so much scope to use technology uh, to make the way that our health service works more responsive. Um, it's really easy to sort of track where patients are calling from, and then tailor the support based on that. Um, and at the moment, we don't. So that feels like a really smart no-brainer type of idea. And then the plastic glass one, I thought was a really good one, um, and it's completely right. You know, I think this goes with the big drive against plastics and around. Um, and I think. Thinking about how we better price things that we know that are bad for the environment is part of it, but in the end, something like plastic grass, I think, is probably going to end up in the space of all plastics, which is that we ban them and we think about natural alternatives that actually work for everyone.
1: Yeah, then yeah, suddenly you'll be very on trend. Yeah, there's this new thing called grass that you can have instead of your plastic grass. Yeah, it's really catching on just because uh, we, we, that, <laughs> yes exactly we really really this new cool thing called grass um uh because we've both got you on uh you you've cast an eye over our uh, times radio listeners uh ideas or at least some of them uh but there's twenty five thousand pounds up for grams uh in the big prize of this hayward uh foundation thing what would what would be your idea uh, uh let's start with you avi oh
6: <laughs> it's difficult i've got so many and, and and as i said uh as as um Sue said it's uh uh, I've got the kind of advantage of being able to being able to toss them off whenever whenever I want. Um, but I think uh, I think it would be something. The, the, the biggest idea I would have is I think we want to be more experimental with policymaking. I think we should try more things and monitoring them to see. I think it would be more about the process by which we make policies rather than any specific idea, um, because I think that's that kind of sets the scene for more good ideas to come through and more things to be tried uh and and for us to learn about them
1: okay and what, what about you miata what would be your what was your big idea
8: if i had one thing that i would want to do coming out of COVID, it would be to introduce a living income across the country uh, and that's basically ensuring that everyone has an income floor so no one falls below a certain level um, and we do it through a, revi- a reform form um, part of our welfare system so that you do it for people both in work and out of work so, we don't have a horrendous situation where people are having to rely on food banks or work, can't heat their homes because they have to feed their kids. Um, it's so basic, but it would be revolutionary.
1: Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, You can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Redbox podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to
0: times.radio forward slash subscribe.